you will join me in Luke chapter 22. We continue in our series through the gospel of Luke. This morning we are in chapter 22. We will be looking at verses 39 through 53. The title of our sermon is Gethsemane. And our key words for our worshipers in training are garden, agony, and kiss. Now we looked last week at what surely ended up being a disappointment to Jesus in the upper room with his disciples. Now recall Jesus had washed the disciples' feet at the Passover meal. He also instituted the Lord's Supper during the Passover. And from there, Judas removed himself from among them to go and prepare Jesus' enemies for what was to come next. And just when we think that perhaps Jesus was having his final moment of intimate fellowship with the remaining 11 disciples, they themselves begin to succumb to the evil onslaughts of the devil. They argue about who among them is the greatest. They're being divided in their fellowship. Then Jesus tells Simon Peter of Satan's desire to, to sift the disciples like wheat, and, and Simon is, is completely ignorant to the reality of his own weakness, his own temptations. And then as Jesus is seeking to ready the disciples for what is going to immediately follow, they're blinded to the reality, and they miss his point entirely. And when Jesus seeks to tell the disciples that the battle that they are facing is not with flesh and blood, but of a spiritual nature, they are gathering the weapons of warfare that they might enter into battle. And remember, at the very end of the section last week, in in verse 38, Jesus says, it is enough. He was saying, enough already. I've had enough of this. They didn't get it. Our Lord was exasperated with them. Now think about that. Is it, is it possible that Jesus, the God-man, that he was frustrated with the disciples? He's a sinless Savior. So how could it be? Well, clearly Jesus was irritated with their ignorance, their division, their blindness. They had just come to the end of, of three years of seminary training with Jesus himself. They've heard all along that this time, this moment they were in was coming. And now what are they worried about? They're worried about who among them is the greatest. So yes, like you and I, Jesus got frustrated. But unlike you and I, he did it without sinning. He did it with much love and grace and mercy and pity. So this morning we come to a very familiar text, Jesus entering into the Garden of Gethsemane to be seized by his enemies, to be taken off to trial, all of it initiated by the kiss of the betraying disciple Judas. And we remember that all along through the Gospel of Luke, we've seen numerous occasions when Jesus has spoke about this. This time was coming. Jesus knew it was coming. 
And you know, there's a lot of things in our lives that we look at and say, if I knew then what I know now, I wouldn't have done that, right? As a spouse, as a parent, as a boss on the job, or a leader of any kind, we we go through those kinds of things. We consider circumstances with hindsight, and we say, I would have done all of that differently. I would maybe have not done that at all. But that's the difference here between us and Jesus. You see, Jesus knew what was coming. He knew the dullness of his disciples. He knew how much disappointment they would prove to be in his darkest hours. He knew that Judas would betray him. He knew that he would be treated as badly as he would. He knew that the cross was coming, and yet he did it anyway. So we shouldn't come to the next several weeks of passages in Luke looking at Jesus and thinking, poor, poor Jesus. Now, Jesus did not go to the cross as a martyr. He did not go to the cross as a victim. Jesus went to the cross willingly. And the writer of Hebrews says it was for the joy that was set before him. You see, the cross is not the greatest tragedy in all of human history. It is surely the most horrendous sin, but it is not the greatest tragedy. You and I, we're the greatest tragedy. Our sin, our disregard for holiness, our dishonoring of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's the tragedy. And that's what sent Jesus to the cross. And that's what makes Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf all the more amazing because it wasn't the sacrifice of a victim. It was the willing sacrifice of a humble, gracious, loving servant savior who made a way that we might live. Well, we'll get there. The cross is coming into full view now. But what we look at this morning is really the introduction of the next 24 hours of Jesus's suffering. And first, we see Jesus with his disciples once again. Look first, beginning in verse 39. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now skip down to verse 45. And when Jesus rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now in John's gospel, we learn that this section comes immediately following what has been called Jesus' high priestly prayer. When Jesus prays for us. He prays for his church. And John gives us a few more details about this entrance into the garden. In John chapter 18, we read, When when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. 
Now, it's very interesting how John details this, and it's, it's just summarized by Luke here when he says Jesus did this as was his custom. But the main point here is really twofold. First, it is that this is the normal pattern of Jesus. He was regularly coming to this place to pray to the Father with dependence upon him. That's very informative for us. Having a place where we go regularly to do business with God in prayer. Do you have that place? It reminds me of the 19th century American pastor named Edward Payson. He died in his bedroom and when the people had come to remove his body, they found that there were grooves worn into the hardwood floor next to his bed where he rocked and seesawed on his knees back and forth in constant prayer day after day. When they were preparing his body for burial, they said his knees looked like they had camel-like pads because they were so rough and worn down from his constant prayer before the Lord. He had a place where he went to do business with God day by day, and so did our Savior Jesus. But secondly here, John wants us to see that this was a place that Judas was familiar with. Judas knew where Jesus was going to be. He knew where to bring those who would seize him. In other words, Jesus didn't run and hide from what was to come. He went where he knew he could be found. It's all the more amazing to realize how out in the open Jesus was when the hour had come. But let's think about these disciples for a moment. He brought all 11 remaining along with him. And from there, three of them, Peter, James, and John, drew even closer to where Jesus went off to pray. And Jesus said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And what an important exhortation from Jesus for all of us. This is with, within the very way that Jesus taught us to pray. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The Puritan Thomas Manton commented on this. He said, here we pray, first, that we may not be tempted. Or second, if the Lord sees it fit that we should be tempted, that we may not yield. Or third, if we yield, that we may not totally be overcome. Is this how you pray about temptation in your life? Apparently, it was the furthest thing from the minds of the disciples. Jesus ends up finding them asleep after he charges them. And he says to them, rise and pray that you may not fall into temptation. Now, Luke doesn't detail this as much as the other gospel writers do, but Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus returned not once but three different times to find the disciples asleep, and he exhorts them to pray. Now, undoubtedly, after the incident in the upper room with the disciples, Jesus' frustration with them is at an all-time high. He was displeased with their unwillingness to exercise self-control. This is their hour of greatest need. And they continue on in self-serving ways, succumbing to their fatigue instead of seeking God's provision in the midst of darkness that lay ahead. 
And you know, it's an interesting consideration for us to think about what happened following this time of great weakness for the disciples. They didn't pray that the Lord would keep them from temptation, as Jesus had told them to do. And as a result, what happens? Every one of them fell into temptation. One by one by one, they disappeared. They left Jesus on his own to be tried and sentenced to death. Brothers and sisters, we must pray that God would help our own frailty, that he would help us in our own wandering hearts that betray him in times of greatest temptation. Lord, keep us from temptation that we not fall into the pleasures of the evil one. But the focus of this passage is really what comes next. And that is Jesus' relationship with the Father in prayer and the agony of his soul in this very hour. Look now at Jesus' prayer beginning in verse 41. And Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, If you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Jesus pulls away from his disciples Luke says it's about a stone's throw away. And it's here that Jesus comes before the Father in the most intimate way that we have seen anywhere else in the Scriptures. He's in agony. His his closest companions have failed him time and time again. And he knows what lies ahead. He's burdened beyond belief. And Luke says Jesus knelt to pray. And Matthew sort of intensifies the description. He says Jesus fell on his face and prayed. Uh, Maybe you've had a situation in your life before. You've experienced this kind of grief, such agony. It's crippling. You, You stumble on your feet. You fall to your knees. You fall on your face on the ground because there's no strength left in your body. And Matthew records Jesus' words to the disciples here when he tells them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. In verse 44, Luke tells us he is in agony. Other ways to translate that word are overwhelmed or immersed or burdened down with grief. And it was so much so, we read, that he began to sweat drops of blood. This is a medical condition. It's rare, but there are many recorded cases of it. The clinical term is hematohydrosis. And under the pressure of great stress, there are blood vessels that that constrict around sweat glands and to the point of rupturing, pushing the blood to the surface that it comes out as droplets of blood mixed with sweat. Everything in the body is in such agony that blood comes from the inside out. Do you sense the agony of Christ? Do you feel the grief? Brothers and sisters, this is what Jesus thinks of our sin, your sin, 
my sin. This is the price he had to pay. Those harsh words you spoke to your child or your spouse this very morning. Those judgmental thoughts you had about your coworkers this week. Those long glances you gave that woman at the store. The lustful burnings of your heart. The hateful disdain you have for your neighbor. Your willingness to worship idols and disregard the things of God. This is what Jesus thinks of it. This is the price Jesus had to pay for it. What a wretched thing sin is. Sin is spiritual insanity. Sin is anti-God in every possible way. It brings the wrath of God. And though he doesn't want to, Jesus must drink the cup of the wrath of God because of our sin. Do you see what grief our sin has brought the Savior? Father, if you are willing Remove this cup from me. Matthew tells us Jesus prayed that same thing three times. Three times Jesus cried out. And three times in the silence the Father responds. You must. You must. All of redemptive history hung in the balance. All of Jesus' law fulfillment was coming to its necessary end that you and I might live. Jonathan Edwards said, Only an infinite God can satisfy an infinite God. Only Jesus could drink the cup. Only Jesus could do what Jesus did because only Jesus is the Savior. Only Jesus is God in the flesh. How could the finite satisfy the infinite? The cross is in the cup. And Jesus knew that he would drink every last drop. The cup was filled with sin. The cup was filled with wrath. The cup was steaming over with a brew that was so awful, so fearful, so dreadful, so unbearable so appalling, so horrendous that Jesus' soul cried out in agony. How could he drink such filth? How could he bear his father's wrath? Though in the upper room he had declared, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. He was embracing his own death on the cross so he could give us the blessings of the new covenant. But now in this hour, just before it all begins, the horror of what is about to ensue strikes him to the very core. It's very clear. This, this isn't something that Jesus wanted in the flesh. And yet he knew that there was no other way. So there's a very deep obligation on his part that he fulfill the covenant that he has made with his father on behalf of his people. And you know, many people look at this instance in Jesus' life and ask, why is there so much fear from Jesus here? Many men and women throughout history have, have died bravely, Fearless death. So why is Jesus in such agony? In fact, the Greek philosopher Celsus used this question as an argument against Christianity. He said, how can one who is divine mourn and lament and pray to escape the fear of death? 
Dear brothers and sisters, the answer should come easy. It is nothing small that Jesus faces. This is not just a death. Jesus knew that death is the wages of sin and that he would pay the total wage of sin. He knew that death is a result of the judgment of God and that he was to bear that judgment. He knew that he would become sin on our behalf. He knew that death would bring on him the full wrath of the Father and that he would propitiate it. He would absorb it in full. That there would be a time when he turned to the Father and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you see, this is why Jesus is filled with such dread This is why he's so fearful. This is why he said he could have died before he even got to the cross. But he pressed on. Not my will, Father, but yours be done. Do you pray like that? In the most devastating of circumstances in your life, in the times of greatest pain and sorrow, in times that you're facing, that you will know will be agonizing and distressing to the greatest degree, do you turn to our Father and say, God, this is not what I want. This is not what I desire. But Lord, not my will be done, but yours. Father, preserve me through this trial that I may be obedient and faithful all the way. Was Jesus' prayer even heard? Yes, it was heard. His request was denied, but it was heard. The writer of Hebrews refers explicitly to this, and he comments, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. And his submission was, Not my will, but yours be done. This is the prayer that God answers, isn't it? Jesus' prayer was a prayer of great faith because he trusted the Father's will in everything. And all true prayers of faith end with, yet not my will, but your will be done. And the Father graciously sends an angel to Jesus We read that in verse 43. He he sends him to strengthen Jesus because he must endure all that lie ahead. And so Jesus will press on. Jesus will submit to the authority of the Father, though they are equal. Jesus has never deviated from the Father's will. He said, I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Can you say that? None of us can say that, but Christ could. And that's what makes him a sufficient Savior. Within the Godhead, this is, as Charles Williams noted, a particular means of joy. The Son is co-equal with the Father, yet the Son is obedient to the Father. A thing so sweetly known in many relations of human love is, beyond imagination, present in the midmost secrets of heaven. Our submission to God 
is our entrance into the sweet joy and unrelenting trust that God's ways are better than our ways. Even when all seems like all we see is dark clouds and suffering and unbearable trial and despair. Look at verse 47. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd And the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. When Jesus rose from prayer the last time, glistening with bloody sweat in the starlight, he was a fearless pillar of determination. He knew Judas was on his way. He could see the light from the torches coming toward him, the quivering shadows and the flashing of bronze armor on its way. But let there be no mistake. Jesus is calm. He is collected. He is in control of all of the events that are happening, including his own death. John gives us a glimpse of this. He writes that when the band of men arrived, Jesus asked with all of the authority in heaven, whom do you seek? And they answer him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Now listen to this. It's really interesting. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asks them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. So not only does Jesus speak with authority, the very words themselves have power that knock the men backwards off of their feet, leaving them confused and alarmed. It's a remarkable scene. You see, Jesus is not a helpless victim. He's officiating over the entire episode as it happens. And then we see Judas. That disciple we saw a few weeks ago, Jesus made his final appeal to him. He opened his heart to him one last time, offering him his love. And here he was for only a few silver coins just hours before the troops were convening, they were gathering together to go after Jesus. Not all of them had probably seen Jesus at this point. And so they would have asked, how will we know which one is him? Who will we arrest? And Judas was there. I will kiss him. That's how you'll know. And both Matthew and Mark describe the kiss. Mark says, going at once to Jesus, Judas says, Rabbi, and kisses him. 
at once. Judas's heavy breathed mouth was pressed to Jesus. There's maybe an insinuation here that he was kissing Jesus over and over. And don't you know those kisses burned? Every last one of them. But Luke doesn't give us the details. Perhaps for him, for Luke, this is too monstrous of a deed to describe. Because that word translated to kiss, it's the same word for to love. So you see, as if it weren't bad enough that Judas betrays our Savior with a greeting, with a kiss, with a sign of affection, we see the mocking horror of the gesture all the more when we understand it's a gesture of love. It was a devilish kiss from hell. But despite the betrayal, what does Jesus do? How does Jesus respond to Judas? Much the same way as he does at the Last Supper. Judas was Satan's agent, no doubt, but he was still a lost soul, and Jesus always cares about lost souls. The question Jesus asked combined foreknowledge with an appeal for repentance. Judas... Would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? It was a poignant appeal. Judas, how could you have chosen such a sign? Could you not have employed another way? Are you so dead? Are you so beyond feeling that you would use a kiss? An old preacher said, Thus to the end Christ seeks to keep him from ruin, and with meek patience resents not indignity, but with majestic calmness sets before the miserable man the hideousness of his act. And you and I, we shake our heads in disgust at Judas. How could he? What evil! And we're right, it's a shocking evil. But you know, every time we sin, we become a kissing betrayer of the Lord Jesus. Every time we say no to God's commands, we kiss our Savior in betrayal. The Puritan Stephen Sharnock wrote, Every sin says, God is not. And when we go our own way, when we chase our own desires, when we reject the Lord's commands for us, we betray his grace in saving us. Brothers and sisters, when we sin, we are at the same time holding Jesus in our embrace and kissing him in betrayal. Do you think about that? When you are following after the temptations before you, do you hear the words of Jesus? Would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Is it worth it? Is it worth it? It's spiritual insanity. Look at verse 49. When those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, Shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and he healed him. And when Jesus 
Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Well, the time had come. Jesus is betrayed. His captors are ready to haul him off. But the clueless disciples still stand there with their two swords in hand. And as we might have guessed, one of them was in Peter's possession. He was the one who had earlier boasted in the evening, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. And he was serious. So serious that he chopped off the ear of a man named Malchus. It's interesting that Luke records that they asked in verse 49, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Because nobody waits for an answer. The question waited for no answer, but good for Malchus that that Peter's sport was fishing. There was no lack of heart on Peter's part here. And swordsmanship aside, Peter was a good man to have with you. But be there no mistake, what Peter did was foolish. It played right into what the mob wanted. They could have accused the disciples and their leader, Jesus, of great crimes. could have taken them all into custody. And remember, later Jesus will tell Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. So what are the disciples doing cutting off the ear of their foe? This is the beginning of the temptation that disciples would succumb to because they had not prayed that the Father would keep them from it. Instead, they slept. But Jesus here, even here, even surrounded by his enemies, he shows compassion. He continues to show he is in complete control of every event. No more of this. He touches the ear of Malchus and he heals him. It's a breathtaking display of power. This man's ear had been severed, cut off, according to John 18, completely. But now, instantly, it is whole again. And Malchus felt it with his bloody hand. And Jesus, at that very moment of his arrest, with blood on the ground and the steel of their swords in the air, reached out to one of his enemies and healed him. He's so full of compassion. His act, that very act, was a prophetic act that his arrest and his death would provide forgiveness and healing for all who would come before him. But notice the irony of all of this. Jesus reminds them that they could have at any time taken him away in the temple when he was out in the open during the day. Why didn't they? Because they were cowards. They feared the people. And surely they knew that Jesus had actually done nothing wrong. So the reality is that they are the lawless ones. 
They came under the cloak of night like armed robbers. Their conduct was an implicit admission that they were outside the realm of justice. Jesus' question undressed his captors, exposing their naked guilt. And the physical darkness of the night matched the spiritual darkness of their hearts. It is, Jesus said, the power of darkness. This was hell's hour. In fact, the very language describing the hour is used in other places to describe the rule and dominion of Satan. Earth's hour was hell's hour because fallen humanity had become instruments in Satan's assault against Jesus. The devil, who after testing Jesus at the beginning of his ministry, had left, Luke tells us in chapter 4, for a more opportune time. And that time is this hour. And the earthbound Sanhedrin, they may have thought themselves free when they condemned Jesus to death. But they were slaves to all of their impulses that came straight from hell. But when all is said and done, your hour, earth's hour, which was also hell's hour, was preeminently heaven's hour. In the upper room, Jesus began his great prayer by saying, Father, the hour has come. And that hour being the destined hour for the events of the cross Here in in Luke, the Passover meal was introduced with when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at table. Thus the hour for Jesus began with his self-giving at the Last Supper and it culminated with his delivering his spirit into the hands of the Father. The suffering and death of Christ came at heaven's hour. This is the hour that was appointed before the foundations of the world. As Peter, Peter so disgraced in that very hour, later as a bold apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ proclaimed at Pentecost, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. J.C. Ryle wrote this on this passage. He said, The sovereignty of God over everything done upon earth is absolute and complete. The hands of the wicked are bound until he allows them to work. They can do nothing without his permission, but this is not all. The hands of the wicked cannot stir one moment before God allows them to begin and cannot stir one moment after God commands them to stop. The very worst of Satan's instruments are working in chains. He could not touch Job's property or person until God allowed him. He could not prevent Job's prosperity Returning when God designs on Job were accomplished. And our Lord's enemies could not take and slay him until the appointed hour of his weakness arrived. Nor yet could they prevent his rising again when the hour came in which he was declared the Son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead. When he was led forth to Calvary, it was their hour. When he rose victorious from the grave, it was his. 
For those of you who do not know Christ, this is the hour. The hour of repentance. Because you, like all of us, have kissed the Savior in betrayal. But the difference between you and those who are in Christ is that your end is like Judas's, a shameful, shameful death. Injustice will not remain with the Lord. Every last sin that has ever been committed must be punished. And for those who are in Christ, every last sin has been punished. Repent and turn from your sin and believe on Christ that you might live. And dear believer, do you feel the weight of remaining sin in your life? Cry out to God that he would keep us from temptation. And when we kiss the Savior, may it be the loving kiss of one who has tasted the sweetness of salvation and not be a betraying kiss of one who says, my ways are better than his ways. And praise be to God that even in the times that we betray our Lord, we are still loved, we are still embraced, we are still forgiven. Jesus drank the cup, and he drank it all for you, he drank it all for me. Thanks be to God. Let's give him thanks now. Father, words escape us to give thanks for you and what you have given us in Christ Jesus. It's really all we can say It's all that we know to say when we consider all that Christ took upon himself in drinking the cup. And Father, we thank you that we know that Jesus, even in the hour of weakness, did not hold back. He did not shy away. He did not abandon his covenant agreement with you. But he pressed on. And in his pressing on, he drank the fullness of the cup, all of the wrath that was reserved for your people, taking it upon himself that we might live. And so, Father, we pray with thankful hearts. We pray, Lord, with broken hearts because we so desire to be rid of the sin in our lives. As we so often succumb to temptation as we walk in betrayal of our Savior, and yet, Father, even in our brokenheartedness, there is much joy in knowing that our redemption is secure, that our salvation is complete, and that it is finished. Christ has redeemed us, and we are free to walk 
in the newness of life. But we do pray, O oh God, keep us from temptation. Keep us from our sin and our failure. That we not walk in spiritual insanity. And every time temptation comes to us, remind us of those words of Jesus. Would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? It's not worth it. Keep us, O God, from the evil one and all of his ways that we might walk in holiness, in godliness to bring you glory, that we might experience the greatest joy. And Father, for those who are here this morning, dead in trespasses and sins, give them new life. Raise them from the death of their sin that they might walk in the life of Christ. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.